welcome to this presentation of Bethel Family Church. We hope you enjoy listening and that it helps you to grow closer to Jesus. So we're going to continue on this morning. The last couple of weeks we've been looking at this topic, the return of the King. Uh, and looking primarily, it's a, it's a topic that's, that's kind of often divisive, often controversial, it's much debated about some of the things that are written in Scripture about Jesus coming back. But we've been, as I, uh, I think I shared with you the first week, I don't think I mentioned it last week, but I've been learning a lot from Pastor Joe. So that was Pastor Joe in that video that just, the, the, who came on and was just about to start talking. Uh, he's our CRC State Chairman currently, and this is a, a series of messages that he preached uh, a number of years ago, before he was state chairman, but um, but it's been really helpful to me in learning how to interpret some of this stuff, and 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 really the gist of a lot of it is about living ready. It's not about figuring everything out. It's not about knowing what God's going to do and what's going to happen. It's about what do we need to do today to be ready for Jesus' return. In the first week, we talked about how. We, we can't predict, we, we can't know when Jesus is going to return. Even Jesus himself, we read in Matthew 24, he said, I don't know. He said, even I don't know when it's, when it's going to be. And there won't be any uh, signs that will kind of point to it. There won't be any signs that you'll be able to look at and say, oh, well, Jesus is about to come back. Uh, and so it's going to be very difficult and that he, what he wants for us is to live in that constant state of readiness in that constant state of eagerness and anticipation for His return. And last week we talked about learning to live wisely. When He returns, He says that there's going to be an accounting of what we chose to do and what we did with the stuff that He gave us. Did we let stuff rule our hearts or did we use it to glorify God and to help His servants? And we, we talked about the difference between the economy of, of God's kingdom where everything that we have belongs to Him and it's all to be used uh, the way that He wants it to be used, according to His instructions. And we compared that with the economy of the world where everything you have is yours and is to do with as you please. And we talked about how what the enemy often wants us to do is to fall into that trap of elevating ourselves, where what we want and what we desire is all important uh, and above all. And this week we're going to continue on. So we've, we've kind of finished Matthew chapter 4. So we're going to read from Matthew chapter 25. If you want to open it, if you've got a Bible and you want to open it up and follow along, we'll have this, this passage on the screen. But we're going to read from... Matthew chapter 25 and the first um, 13 verses are a parable that Jesus told us. Now, if you've ever read this parable before, it's the par- sometimes referred to as the parable of the, the ten virgins or the, the five wise and five foolish virgins. Uh, in this translation that we're going to read, it refers to them as, as bridesmaids. But it's, if you've ever read this parable before, sometimes it's kind of it's not always easy to make sense exactly of what Jesus meant. Now, one of the things that we discover as, as we read the Gospels and we read some of the parables that Jesus taught, often we have the benefit of, you know, we, we kind of read this account of where the disciples came to Jesus afterwards and they said, Jesus, what did you mean when you told that parable? Like, what was that story about? And so we get the benefit of being able to feel all smart and spiritually wise and stuff because, you know, we've read that uh, and Jesus' explanation and we know what the parables are about. The problem is that in this parable, that doesn't happen. <laughs> Jesus doesn't explain this parable and it doesn't occur in any of the, 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 anywhere else in the Bible. So, um, we'll, we'll, but we'll try and kind of work out a little bit of what I think Jesus is trying to talk about and explain. But if you've heard anybody talk about this parable before, you'll probably know, you'll probably recognize some stuff. And there might be some familiar things, but some of it, people don't always agree on what this parable means because we don't have that kind of definitive explanation from Jesus. But let's look at it together and, and then we'll talk about it. So verse 1, he says, Jesus, this is Jesus speaking and he says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish 
and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming! Come out and meet him! And all the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, We don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or hour of my return. How do we understand this parable? There's probably a few things that we can kind of guess about the meaning of this parable. We can guess that the bridegroom represents Jesus. Now, Jesus often talks about himself as the bridegroom, doesn't he, in other parables and other places. And, and it's interesting to note that like in some other parables, he talks about the bridegroom as being delayed, taking longer to arrive than what people were expecting. We've been talking about that over the last couple of weeks, haven't we? Had Jesus said, hey guys, I'm coming back, but it's going to take a while. It's going to be a fairly long amount of time, so be patient and wait, but it will come. I will come when you're not expecting it. But what about the rest? What, what do we make of the rest? So there's some things that we need to understand about the context of this story because there are some, some phrases and some things that kind of look like other passages of Scripture, but they're not necessarily directly connected. And we don't want to fall into the trap of assuming that something means the same thing just because it's a similar picture that's used or similar phrase that gets used. Okay, so the bridesmaids or in, in some well, you might have heard this story before in terms of virgins. The word, often in our culture, in our society today, when we see the word virgin, we kind of, we associate that with purity. We associate that with, you know, sexual purity. But when we, when we read this in the scripture, we need to understand that the word is essentially just used generically to mean young women, particularly young women of marriageable age. Part of the reason that it's kind of we use this interchangeably is because they didn't really have a separate word or term. They didn't need to have a separate term for virgin and young woman because in the culture, a young woman was a virgin. It was like if if you weren't, the the penalty was death if you were caught in a in a relationship outside of marriage. So it was kind of this thing. It was just assumed, and so they would use the word interchangeably but when we read that word in the scripture we need to understand that it's not referring to particularly about purity but it's referring to a young woman who's of marriageable age so we have these 10 young women who are as yet unattached they don't have any great uh, social status or standing in their community now a wedding was a big deal a wedding was a, a major event. Weddings in Jewish culture would often last for days and days and days. And there'd be feasting and there'd be partying and there'd be all kinds of um, celebrating and rejoicing and dancing and, uh, and all this kind of stuff would be going on. And we, as we read in this story, they're, they're waiting the arrival of the bridegroom. So it's also reasonable to assume that this is someone who's coming from out of town and it's probably likely a, a wedding of some status. So for a young woman with no connections, with no social standing, they're not likely to be invited into the wedding of the year. So the only way that they can kind of be part of this event, be sort of part of this kind of big celebration and thing is to uh, so, so what would happen is the bridegroom with his entourage, it's a little bit kind of almost the opposite of what we do today. Today we have the bridegroom who's kind of there waiting at the altar and the bride is the one who comes down the aisle with her procession, isn't it? 
in Jewish culture, in, in Jesus' day, it was kind of the opposite. The, the bride would be waiting at home with her family and the bridegroom would come into, whether it was coming into town or he'd be coming down the streets with his big procession and he would come and he would uh, take the bridegroom to his house and, or, or wherever it was that they were celebrating. So it was the bridegroom that would come with this big procession. And so for these young women who kind of, with, with no social standing, if they want to kind of be part of this event, so what they do is they, they make, the, they get themselves into the right place at the right time and they come out to meet the bridegroom as he's coming and he's rejoicing and he's coming to get his bride um, and he's, he's excited. I don't know if, if you guys can, you guys who are married can remember what it was like on your wedding day. I know some of you younger ones haven't got there yet but I'm sure that you probably imagine some of what that day might be like but for me I remember what it was like on my wedding day. There was this kind of incredible nervous anticipation but also joy and excitement you know I was I was going to get to marry the the woman of my dreams <laughs> and and so they would as, as he was coming up he, there's this excitement there's this joy he's the bridegroom's happy and he's celebrating he's like yes we're in a party and I'm getting married and and all this kind of stuff and so these young women if they were in the right place at the right time they, they can come out and meet the bridegroom and he'd be like, yeah, hey, come on, let's go partying, come on, join the party, join the celebration, everybody's welcome, let's all go, you know, and so there was this kind of, they, they'd kind of get in uh, to, the, to the thing. Now, the reason that this was so important for these young women to be part of this celebration is that there might be a chance in these days of arranged marriages and uh, and all that kind of stuff, there was a chance that they could do something about changing their future. If they didn't want to be married off to dad's mate from work, you know, Bill, who's 56, um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a little bit balding on top and a bit of a belly going on, I, I don't know. You know. But it was kind of the thing that happened, wasn't it? Hey, you want to marry my daughter? Sure thing, you know, give us two camels and she's all yours. Now... <laughs> Yeah, it, it was so for these young women. If that was not what they wanted for their future, this was an opportunity to meet the eye of Mr. Wright. You know, of Mr. Mr. Wright with social connections. If he's at this wedding, he, he's got some social status. He's got some standing. You know, they might have that that magical dance under the moonlight. Fireworks go off in the background, and they just gaze lovingly at each other as they're in each other's arms and know that they're the one. I don't know, maybe. We watch too many of those kind of movies in our household, I don't know. <laughs> but, but she, you know, she might hope that if she met this, you know, attractive young man, caught his eye, you know, batted her eyelids at him in the right way, that he would then sort of go and think, oh, you know, I'm interested in this young lady and go and sort of approach the family to um, begin a, a relationship with her and potentially... Um, they might get married down the track. But these young women are, are determined. And what we see is that some of these young women were so determined about changing their future and changing their, their potential fate that they did everything that they could to make sure that they were not going to miss out on this opportunity. Now, all of those 10 young women kind of wanted to be there and wanted to... to, to get this opportunity but five of them were were kind of determined they all brought lamps like they didn't know when the bridegroom was going to rock up it says he was delayed it says it was very late it says it was in the middle of the night um, so that in some way they'd all sort of thought ahead but some were so determined that they were prepared for whatever it took whatever might come on whatever might happen uh, and the others were not I remember uh, it, it's a little bit like, kind of like that scenario when you, you know, if you've ever seen people camped out, you know, for like concert tickets or something or, you know, the latest iPhone release and people get really, and, and they like super organized, they bring their little tents that they can sleep, and they got their sleeping bags and they got snacks and food and water and, you know, sometimes they're camping out there for days, you know, because just make sure that they get in and they don't miss out. And it's a little bit kind of like that sort of scenario. These, 
the, these women were kind of, they, were, they wanted to be there front and centre so that they didn't miss out on this opportunity. And five of these young women were, were wise and they were kind of like the ones who they'd brought the extra water and they'd brought the extra oil and they'd you know, brought their sleeping bag and, and they were there for whatever it took. Nothing was going to stop them. Even when the, the, the other women, this kind of seems a little bit harsh to us, doesn't it? When the other women say, you know, share some of your oil with us. And they're like, no, 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 you go get your own. Like, the, 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 there's no chance that we are going to miss out on this opportunity. Like, even if it means that we have to be a little bit hard, like, that we are not willing to do anything that is going to jeopardize uh, this opportunity for us. So, you know, and they're like, you know, Woolies is open, go down the road and get your own oil and <laughs> come back and um, whatever the case might be. And of course, by the time that those young women got back, the gates were shut and they'd missed their opportunity because they were not prepared for a long wait. Now, I don't believe that this parable was written or that Jesus told this parable to say that there are lots of Christians who aren't going to get into heaven because they're not prepared or they didn't do this or they didn't do that. I know that I've heard people say that, I've heard people use that and there are some words and phrases that we read in that that kind of make us think about some other stories about people who got rejected and things like that, isn't there? But what we see in this story, like the Bible refers to us as the bride of Christ, doesn't it? So we see that these young women... They were not the bride. Don't make, don't make these young women Christians because Christians are the bride and, and these were the, the bridesmaids. These were young women who were kind of come in to be part of the crowd and attend the wedding. And so I don't want you to kind of hear that message this morning that's, that's you know, I, what I'm not saying is that whole thing of if you're not prepared, if you don't do this, if you don't do that, then you'll be left out of heaven. Uh, you know, you'll... The Jesus will come back and you'll miss it and, um, you know, and all that kind of stuff because you weren't ready. That is not the message that I'm, I'm sharing this morning. We talked about last week about, you know, being generous, but, but God is not, it's not like that thing where Jesus says, if you're not good enough, you don't try enough, if you don't do enough, you don't give enough, that you get kicked out of heaven. It doesn't work like that. Our, our salvation and getting into heaven is not about what we do, it's about what Jesus did, isn't it? But Jesus is using this story, he's using this imagery of, of something that was a kind of a, an event, an occurrence, or something that people understood to paint a picture of how he wants his faithful servants to live in constant devotion to him. He wants us to kind of live in that, that, that sense of being fully committed every day. Last week we talked about what a faithful servant is. Someone who lives every day with the knowledge that Jesus is coming back. And that this stuff that I have is, is not mine. But I'm just a steward of, of Jesus' um, possessions. And I need to use it in a way that will bring glory to Him. This week in this story, which is kind of follows straight on from the one that we read uh, last week, he's saying that living ready for his return means living in constant devotion to him, living in constant love for him, living with that kind of that eagerness, that desire to be with him for these the, the, the young women that we read in this, in this story, in this parable, the wise, for the wise young women, their, their desire, their, their passion became an obsession and it became more than just, oh yeah, I'd like to get into the thing. It became, I have to do whatever it takes. Passion for God is, is not a, a new or, uh, not, it's not a new thing that Jesus is kind of introducing here, is it? Like all throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, um, this is, there's this constant theme throughout all of Scripture, isn't there? That God wants all of us. God wants all of our devotion. 
God wants all of our heart. He wants all of our passion. He wants all of everything that we have to be fully devoted to Him. Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. That's not, a, not always an easy thing to do, isn't it? But there's this kind of this, this urging of Jesus. And we're going to just kind of explore this and unpack this. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 to 5, there's, there's these letters that are being written to the churches um, throughout Asia. And, and in this one, Jesus writes to this church and he commends them. He says, I know all the things you do. This is a letter to Ephesus. He says, I've seen your hard work. I've seen your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works that you did at first. God's rebuke to this church is that they've allowed their love him to grow cooler they've allowed it to kind of cool now i don't know it doesn't kind of say why um he commends them for a whole bunch of they've suffered persecution they've stayed faithful they haven't gone off into false teachings or listened to to the wrong thing maybe they've grown weary maybe they've got tired i can relate to that sometimes (laughs) i don't know about you Maybe they've fallen into the trap of, uh, of pride and thinking that they're suffering for Jesus and their diligence in staying true makes them, you know, superior to other Christians. I, I don't know. Maybe they've become hardened to God because of their spiritual uh, wounds and the things that they've suffered. I, we don't know. We can only kind of speculate about that. But we just know that their love has grown cold. They don't love God the way that they used to. And Jesus urges them, he says, look at, you know, remind yourselves of of the way that you used to love me. And turn back to that, reignite that, that flame, reignite that passion that you once had for me. In relationships... There's an ebb and flow of, ebb and flow of feelings for, for people that we care about and love, isn't there? Do you remember when you were first in love? Do you remember that first time that you fell in love with someone and you just, like you, you just looked for any excuse to be with that person? I remember when Kerry and I were dating, when we were engaged, her, uh, her curfew was 12.30. She had to be home by 12.30, so her parents went awake all night worrying because we probably would have stayed out long just to spend time together I, I don't remember too many nights during that that's all right it's <laughs> definitely like pg rated it's okay but I, I don't remember too many nights that we were home we would well, I was dropping her off early like that that was pretty rare we, we wanted to be together as much as possible. Over the 13 months of our engagement, and even, I think, the months before that when we were dating, we saw each other every day. The only day that we didn't see each other between when we started courting, dating, whatever you want to call it, and when we got married was the one day she went to Adelaide to go try on her wedding dress. That was the only day that we didn't see each other during that time. Now, I'm not, I'm not bragging or anything, but I, I don't know if you can, you can relate to that feeling of when you, when you are in love and when those, those feelings are just burning hot and you just look for any opportunity. You'll get up. I I'm not a morning person. Like, I hate getting up early in the morning. But if 5 o'clock in the morning had been the only time that I could have seen Kerry, I would have been up at 4.30. Like, I did absolutely... We looked for every opportunity. And, you know, and you're fine. You, you go out and you see each other on your lunch. You've got 20 minutes for lunch. And, you know, and you spend 15 of them driving to get to somewhere just so you can spend five minutes with that person. I don't know if some of you can relate to this. <laughs> but you look for excuses to be together, don't you? But as time goes on, that, that, that excitement, that initial fire, that passion kind of dies down a bit. I'm not getting up at 4.30 just to 
anymore. <laughs> um, I don't stay up till 12.30 very often either. Um, you know, I don't open the, I used to open the door for, I'd, you know, I'd get there, I'd, you know, do the romantic, gentlemanly, chivalrous thing and I'd open the door and I, I don't do that so much these days. Um, I know, I know, it's terrible, isn't it? Some of it kind of goes out the window a bit when you're kind of, you know, trying to wrestle three or four kids into the car and you've got your hands full and it's a little bit more difficult. Am I right, Charo? <laughs> You know, I don't bring flowers home as much anymore, which sometimes I get in trouble for, but, you know. (laughs) But it's kind of, you know, it kind of cools off. You settle down into this sort of comfortable place of just kind of existing with each other. And and Jesus says, you know, if if you see this happening, this is kind of a, a red flag warning. If your passion for Jesus is starting to cool down and we're getting a little bit more comfortable when there's not that same sense of, of eagerness and desire to spend time with him, there, there's trouble coming. You might not last the long wait. He wants our passion to be continually fired up by him. If we're just, you know, like, eh, whatever, about our relationship with God, then we, we might lose it. We might lose that, that intimacy and that connection that we have with him and he does not want that to happen. He says, that is not okay with me. I want to look at song of, some, some verses from uh, Song of Songs. Sometimes it's called Song of Solomon because Solomon wrote it. But this is a book about true love. It doesn't have any pirates, but it does have kissing. <laughs> Um, but it's kind of like this, this love poem. I don't know, some of you have read it. I know Katie's read it um, uh, and, and kind of like loves all the, the romantic bits in it. But uh, I want to, we, don't, we don't know whether this is kind of something that Solomon is writing about his, his relationship with a particular one of his many wives um, uh, or someone that he loved or if it's just fictional. We can't be entirely certain about that. But it does serve as an amazing picture of God's love for his people, God's love for us. In uh, in the first chapter, we kind of, we, we read about that new love kind of thing. We read, this is, this is the, the young woman, the, the beloved, and she says, kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. How pleasing is your fragrance. That Lynx body cologne is awesome. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. (laughs) Your name is like the spreading fragrance of scented oils. No wonder all the young women love you. Take me with you. Come, let's run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. You you can kind of hear the the passion and the young love in those words, can't you? It's it's full of it. And and for sometimes, for, for a lot of us, when we discover this relationship with Jesus and we begin to understand how much God loves us and he cares for us and what he's done for us we we kind of have some of those you know we're just like God you're so amazing God you're so wonderful thank you Jesus that you gave your life for me and you loved me and you cared for me and there's this this excitement and this passion and this joy but in the story the king knows that the maiden's uh, love for him is, is still immature. It's not yet complete. There's still kind of a degree of infatuation, but it's not come to kind of full maturity. So he draws her in because he wants, he wants to make her love secure. He wants to make her secure in him so that she never leaves him. So he, he kind of urges her and he sort of pushes her and he prompts her. In, in chapter 2, the, the king, the, the, the lover, he writes this, he says, My dove is hiding behind the rocks, behind an outcrop on the cliff. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is pleasant and your face is lovely. And what he's saying is that she's still kind of, she's still holding back, she's still hiding, she's, she's not ready to publicly declare her love and throw everything in with him yet like that and he uses that image of the 
the, the dove in the cliff that's just kind of like protecting itself and it's hiding away and it's guarded. He says, you're interested, you, you know, you, you're kind of drawn by, the, by who I am, but you, you're not yet, you haven't committed yourself yet. You haven't got to that point of deciding that I'm the only one for you and, and nothing else matters. You haven't given me your whole heart. And so the king prompts her and urges her, let's, let's make it public, let's make it known, let's you know, shout it from the rooftops and, and tell everybody. In chapter 3, we read about the young woman and she has this dream and you can imagine it's sort of like the, you know, like the dream sequences in movies and it goes all shimmery. And, and she says in, in the first few verses of chapter 3, she says, One night as I lay in bed, I yearned for my lover. I yearned for him, but he did not come. So I said to myself, I will get up and roam the city, searching in all its streets and squares. I will search for the one I love. So I searched everywhere, but I did not find him. The watchmen stopped me as they made their rounds, and I asked, have you seen the one I love? Then scarcely had I left them when I found my love. I caught and held him tightly, then I brought him to my mother's house, into my mother's bed where I had been conceived. This dream pushes her to commit because she realizes that if she continues to hold back, she might lose him. She continues to play, you know, too hard to get. <laughs> um, maybe she won't get caught. And so she, she says, that, that's it. Like I, the, the thought of losing him is too much to bear and she gets up and she goes out and she starts searching and now she doesn't care who knows. She's like, I, you know, I accosted these watchmen. I'm like, you know, where is the one I love? And, you know, she doesn't care anymore. And when she finds him, she grabs hold of him and squeezes him tightly. I know, public displays of affection, right? Yeah. And then she takes him not to some secret place where they can continue their relationship behind the scenes, but to her family, to her home. And makes this declaration, you know, Mum, Dad, family, this is this is the one I want to be with. This is the, the this is the one for me. He's the one I love. Her passivity is gone. She's committed. She's she's thrown. She's all in at this point. And in chapter four, what we see is that that he begins to praise her. He begins to bless her and uh, and encourage her and lift her up. You know, I mean, you read some of this stuff. Says, you, are, you are beautiful, my darling. Beautiful beyond words. I love, I love this next line. He says, you have captured my heart. You hold it hostage with one glance of your eyes. You can just imagine reading those words in some romance novel or something, can't you? He's passionate. He's showering her with love and affection. She's committed herself to him and she receives this, this love and affection and uh, in, in return. And she, she's just overwhelmed by this love and it begins to kind of change her. And it all culminates in their wedding and she goes from being the maiden to being the bride in the story. But... Is her love complete for him? Or is, does she begin to, to, to kind of pull away from him again? In chapter 5, verse 2, we read, uh, this is the, the woman speaking. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake when I heard my lover knocking and calling. Open to me, my treasure, my darling, my dove, my perfect one, my head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. But I responded, oh, I have taken off my robe. Shall I get dressed again? I have washed my feet. Should I get them soiled? But the king has been away longer than she expected. You know, it's, 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 it's the early hours of the morning. Because uh, we read, like, you know, he's like, it's dewy, it's cold outside, his, his hair is damp, he's taken longer to arrive. And how does she respond? 
Like, does she still have that same eagerness, that same desire to, to be with her lover? It's kind of not quite there, is it? She's like, oh, it's, it's a lot of trouble to get up out of bed. I've already got my PJs on and taken my makeup off. And, you know, do I really have to get up and, you know, make myself presentable? She's kind of lost a bit of that passion and that eagerness for him hasn't she and I want to challenge us I want to ask us this question how is your passion for God how is your eagerness to spend time with him it's it's really about worship it's really about uh, you know how are you at expressing your affection for God are you eager? Does worship and praise just kind of like bubble up and spill out of you at random times during the day or, or at night? When, you, when you're thinking about things, do you, do you just kind of burst out in you know, expressions of praise and, and gratitude and worship of God? When we get together on Sunday, are you eager to uh, kind of express your affection for Jesus? How do you respond? Do we kind of have the, the oh, I, I don't know, when, we, when we're together on a Sunday morning and it's worship time, do you ever kind of just like, uh, I really just don't feel like it today? You know, I'm, or, you know, uh, I'm not really much of a singer, so, you know, I just wait for the sermon or <laughs> maybe it's, maybe you're feeling, maybe it's, oh, I'm so tired this morning feeling a bit down, feeling a bit low, not really feeling like very worshipful this morning, you know, maybe I don't really like that song very much, you know, oh, it's only a, it's only a video, it's not a live band this morning, so, you know, whatever, I don't know. Did you know that worshipping is our job as human beings, worshipping God is our job as human beings, we are created to worship Him. No matter how we feel, no matter what's going on, no matter what song we're singing or what musos are, uh, are here or not here or what, whatever's going on, our job as human beings is to worship God. And your worship is a reflection of your passion for Jesus. Does it need some work? Where, where are you at? If, if you kind of think about that and you go like, yeah, actually, you know, sometimes I don't have a great attitude. Sometimes I, my, my passion has, has grown a little cold. Then this warning in Matthew is for you today. Our lives need to be full of passion for Him. Our love and devotion to Him has to be more than just casual because if it's just casual, it won't last it won't sustain us like marriage a relationship doesn't stay hot unless you're willing to work at it continuously the worst thing that we can ever do is to take somebody that we love for granted jesus says that is just not acceptable with me that is just not acceptable you do whatever it takes to stay more in love with me every day you listen to me, you learn about me, you pay attention to my words, you, you keep in my presence, you keep your love burning strong, you keep it bright, you keep it hot, and you don't allow it to grow cold. And so the woman in the story is, she's kind of reluctant to get up. We read on and we see what happens in verse 4. It says, My lover tried to unlatch the door and my heart thrilled within me. I jumped up to open the door for my love and my hands dripped with perfume. My fingers dripped with lovely myrrh as I pulled back the bolt. I opened to my lover, but he was gone. My heart sank. I searched for him, but could not find him anywhere. I called to him, but there was no reply. 
The night watchmen found me as they made their rounds. They beat and bruised me and stripped off my veil, those watchmen on the walls. Make this promise, O women of Jerusalem. If you find my lover, tell him I am weak with love. The king knows that he he has to keep his beloved's love alive. And God is like that with us too. And so he puts his hand through the latch opening and he, he drips myrrh all over the, the latch opening, this, this perfume, and, and he leaves the fragrance of his presence on the door latch because he knows that at some point she'll come up to answer the door. some point she'll come, but, but it's important that he isn't there because he wants her to, to learn to love him and to be passionate about being with him all the time. He wants her to learn to to live with that eagerness and that desire, just as he has for her. When she gets there, she discovers that the latch is covered with this, this myrrh and now her hands are all covered with it. And sometimes God in his grace and he's wanting to, to help us to keep this love alive within us. He warns us very seriously, you could lose this intimacy with me. But he also leaves that fragrance of himself, that smell of his presence, a reminder of his love and his grace. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Sometimes we feel, don't we, that, that God has abandoned us that God has left us. And then suddenly there's this this scent of the presence of God. There's this fragrance and it's like God is saying, I was here, I've, I've been around. And you remember, you have this moment of going, ah, oh, yes, God is wonderful. God is amazing. He draws us back and it rekindles that flame. Matthew chapter 10, just a a couple of last scriptures that I want to share with you as we're getting close to the end here this morning. Jesus talks about, Jesus says some words in Matthew 10 that that are really tough words. They're really challenging and difficult words. But he's talking about this in verse 34. He says, don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. This is a really tough passage, isn't it? What Jesus is saying here is is that your love, Jesus is saying your love for me has to be great, the greatest consuming passion of your life. You must love me more than your parents. Doesn't mean you don't love them. <laughs> Doesn't mean you don't love your kids. He's just saying nothing else should compare to the commitment and the love and the passion that you have for me. Jesus never said, oh, I'm here to make everything work smoothly and everything's going to be nice and everything's going to be great. Jesus says, I'm here to turn your passion and your loyalty towards God in a way that sometimes other people in your life won't like it. But you'll begin to love me more than them and you'll be forever loyal to me no matter how other people might feel about it. God doesn't want anything or anyone else to come between you and Him. He wants that that eagerness, that passion, that desire uh, of love to be the most important thing. King da- Do you remember King David in the Bible? He, he wrote a, many of the Psalms. In Psalm 84, we read, you know, he, he says this way, he says, my soul yearns to the point of fainting. He says, it's, it's this desire that's just, it's wearing me out. 
He says, my soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. You hear that passion? David is just declaring, God, I want you. I want your presence. I need your presence. My soul longs for the presence of God. There's this great story um, about King David and he'd, he'd kind of gone and, and recaptured the Ark of the Covenant, which in those days contained the presence of God. And they were bringing it back into Jerusalem and there was this amazing kind of procession. They'd sort of, you know, every few steps they'd stop and they'd worship and they'd offer a sacrifice to God. And it says that David danced before the Lord, full of joy and and passion about God's presence coming back into his city. It says, David danced before the Lord with all of his might. He totally embarrassed his wife. (laughs) He did the whole dorky dad dance thing, which I will not demonstrate for you this morning. (laughs) But David's passion for God was was the reason that his life was so blessed. The Bible is is full, and, and, and the book of Revelation, if you've ever read through the book of Revelation, you may have noticed that constantly throughout the book of Revelation, all the characters in this, in this book are continuously bursting out into spontaneous worship of God. Uh, something like 15 times through the, the 22, or, or I think it is, chapters of Revelation, they just suddenly burst out into, you know, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. You know, worthy to be praised. And the, the, there's these, these elders and these angels and they all just kind of burst out into song and worship. And, the, you know, as, as, as weird as the book of Revelation is sometimes, really a, a big part of it is about worship of God, and worship of, of Jesus, of the Lamb who was slain, who has conquered the line of the tribe of Judah, the one who is worthy to open the scrolls. And they're just worshipping over and over again and the return of the king when we start talking about this the, the the return of the king is really about those who are watching and waiting for him with eagerness with anticipation and the parable that we read at the beginning this morning jesus ends with this encouragement to keep watch he says keep watch keep watch you know the difference between waiting and watching try and say this without tell this story without being emotional but um a few years ago um some of you know i went over to the philippines um and we visited pastor gilbert and the church there and we did some ministry and i was away for about two weeks and for some that's not such a long time to be away from home i know some of you are away from your families a lot longer than that but it was a long time for me and it was a long time for my family and uh when I returned, I knew that my family had been missing me and, and Kerry particularly, but all our kids as well, they were kind of waiting eagerly for me to return. But the minute that plane touched down, they were out there at the gate waving and waving, you know, waving flags and, you know, <laughs> watching for my return wasn't just kind of sitting at home you know just like oh yeah he's coming home today it's kind of like that I've got to be there you know I've got to I've got to watch and watching that plane come in and land you know it's a little bit like that it's that that sense of are we watching for his return is there that eagerness that anticipation that you know the end of the book of Revelation Jesus sort of ends with the the word, he says, you know, yes, I'm coming soon. And John kind of utters this declaration. He says, yes, come Lord Jesus. And this morning, you know, I encourage you sort of to, to, to echo those words. Yes, yes, come, come Jesus. 
Come, Lord Jesus. Keep your fire burning. Keep your passion alive. Keep your love for Jesus hot. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are coming back. We thank you that you love us so passionately and deeply that you gave everything for us. Lord, I pray this morning that you would help to rekindle, to to re-stir in us the flames of that love in us for you. Lord, help us to, to have a determination in our hearts not to allow that love to grow cold, never to be apathetic about our relationship with you, never to be complacent in stirring that up. Lord Jesus, will you help us? Will you continue to call us? Will you continue to draw us into that that place of intimacy and closeness with you? Father, as we, we think on these things this morning, would you bring things to mind that maybe uh, are getting in the way? Bring things to our minds that we need to deal with and move out of the way. Would you bring things to minds that are, are distractions for us? That come between us and you? God, we want to be eagerly anticipating your return we want to be burning bright as we wait and as we watch help us in that we pray amen thanks for listening to today's message for more information or to listen to other podcasts head to our website at bethelcrc.org.au or check out Bethel Family Church on Facebook